Hello and welcome to our latest edition of the PLU podcast. My name is Zach Powers. I work here in PLU's Division of Marketing and Communication. Today we're going to be talking with Seth Dowland, who is an assistant professor of religion at PLU and an affiliate faculty member of the Women and Gender Studies program. Seth earned his PhD in American religion from Duke University and has been a faculty member at PLU since 2011. Thanks for being here, Seth. Thanks, Zach. A little warm up before we get into talking about your new book and uh, your scholarship. Before I came down to the studio, I was on Rate My Professor. And I don't know if you've <laughs> yes. taken a look at your account. Uh, you're faring pretty well. So I was going to read you a few things that have been written about you, and then you could kind of say true, false, no comment, or some sort of rebuttal. All right. This so, is, uh, you know, kind of a nerve-wracking way to start, but let's go. All right. We'll start with this one. Professor Dowling got me interested in religion, and his class was really engaging. Classes consist of discussion, lecture group, and even sometimes drawing. True. We do draw in my classes. We occasionally will draw pictures of what we imagine 16th century reformers looked like and scary diagrams of what happens when you sin. So, yeah, we do draw. All right. That's, that's pretty awesome. So the next one, bring all books to class since he doesn't say when what book is used and kind of uses all the books all the time for discussions. Ooh, partly true. I do say it's on the syllabus and then sometimes students do forget uh, which books to bring. And I haven't exactly reminded them, but they know where to look to find which book is, is needed for class. I like this one from someone who says they were in your first ever class at PLU, American Church History. True. Okay. So far, so good. It says, um, lectures twice a week, activity day on Friday, which sounds fun. And this is the part I liked. Ask him anything about his subject. Trust me, he knows the answer. I promise. <laughs> uh, false, but I uh, appreciate the, the shout out from that student. So next one. Never had such a hard grader. <laughs> False. <laughs> I, I know some myself that are harder than me, but uh, I guess I, I do I do ask things students to do things in terms of their writing that they may not get in every religion class. There is one about that. It says, peer reviews for essays make you feel like you're in a freshman writing 101 class. Hard grader critiques everyone like they're a religion major, although they aren't. False. I do. <laughs> I, I figure. <laughs> I... You know, you can't think without writing, and I, I think you need to write to, to be able to think through some of these issues we talk about in my classes. I agree. He is young, makes the subject very interesting and approachable. Yeah, that was truer three years ago than it is now. <laughs> one with this one. This class got me interested in being a religion major. He is a great professor who does his job very well. I took this as an 8 a.m., and it was the first 8 a.m. I didn't hate waking up for. <laughs> I, I'm glad that's true. I, I can't, can't doubt that student's uh, account, so I appreciate that comment. So out of helpfulness, clarity, and easiness, your strongest area, say these internet-savvy students, is helpfulness. Oh, okay. I don't know if I can say true or false, but I'm glad to hear and it. And then clarity. Then easiness, substantially lower. But I took some time. I wasn't I wasn't willing to accept this purely. So I took some time and I looked up other religion professors here at PLU and low easiness scores is a across the board critique of the department. I think that's probably a function of the fact that every student takes <laughs> I think so two too. religion classes. <laughs> I think and, so too. And maybe expects it to be easier than it is. I, I think I think so too. So, so I wasn't 
passing any, any, any judgments. It's come prepared for your religion classes That's right. and That's right. pay attention to your writing. That's right. What are you teaching uh, this year at PLU? So right now I am teaching American church history, and uh, that's my bread and butter class. It's a class that I love to teach. It's what I studied in graduate school. And I'm also teaching a freshman seminar, first-year seminar, on a history of religion and gender in America. And it's uh, 11 students, all of them female, living in the gender empowerment wing of uh, Harstad dorm. And we cool. meet downstairs in Harstad. So I want to start by talking about your new book. It's called Family Values and the Rise of the Christian Right. Can you share a bit about it? So this book is a product of five years of research and revision. The research actually started uh, 10 years ago when I was in grad school, and then I've been working on the book itself for about five years. It's a study of evangelical Christians and their affiliation with Republican politics in the last third of the 20th century. And the central argument is that the family values political agenda, an agenda that was somewhat diffuse and encompassed a large number of issues spoke to two central concerns of evangelical Christians. First, the notion that gender roles are created by God, that God created us to be certain things if we were a man and certain things if we were a woman, and we needed to uphold those gender roles. And then the second is that God ordained authority structures to govern society, govern families, govern churches, govern institutions. And in a world after the social revolutions of the 1960s, where everybody was challenging authority, evangelicals thought we needed to uphold authority structures in order to follow God's guidance. Is this a book that a non-academic could follow? I took my two years, two classes, not two years, my two classes of uh, religion at PLU, grew up in an evangelical church. Could I follow this book? I uh, had a fascinating conversation with a family friend who uh, read the book. He's not an academic. He uh, is a Christian who taught high school Sunday school. I was actually in his high school Sunday school class 20 years ago. And uh, he read the book. He told me that it wasn't a beach read and uh, (laughs) that he did have to take some time to get through it. But he was able to grasp the central arguments and um, he he was able to engage me on a lot of them in in a fair amount of depth. So I would say I can't promise a page turner, but I did try to write it in a way that would be accessible to non-specialists. So is part of that having to do with the structure and how the book is broken up into three sections? And could you explain a little bit how you organize this book? So the book's organized into sections called Children, Mothers, and Fathers. The three sections correspond to the ideal nuclear family and family values politics, uh, mom and dad and, and, and their kids. The section on children has to do with schools, Christian schools, public schools, home schools, and the way evangelicals became politically mobilized through concerns about education. The section on mothers deals with abortion and feminism, two hot-button political issues that evangelicals approached through a sense that women were called first and foremost to be wives and mothers, and these, these issues challenged that notion. And then the third section on fathers deals with masculinity and uh, finishes with a chapter on the Promise Keepers, which was a 1990s movement designed to focus on Christian men and the need for them to attend to their families. So I do think there's an entry point for a lot of people who live through this time period who will remember some of these issues to, to kind of get into the book even as non-specialists. To what extent are you a character or a personality in this book. I mean, if it's an academic work, we would think traditionally that 
that you would try to minimize that, but inherently it seems like that wouldn't be escapable completely. So how do you coexist with this topic that you're covering and your own perspectives as a citizen and Christian? I, uh, this is a great question, and I would say I'm not really a character in the book at all. I, I, I try not to lay my cards on the table, and I do that in part because it's, it's common academic practice, but in part because when you're writing about contentious issues like religion and politics, it's easy for them to become partisan. And what I wanted to do in this book was to treat fairly the people I'm writing about and to try to understand them on their own terms. I obviously have some of my own thoughts about this, but that's not what this book's about. This book is an attempt to make sense of a particular worldview that was really dominant in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s among conservative evangelicals. I wanted to write about this worldview in a way that allows for people to grow and change, that attends to the very human impulses. Of course, people wanted their families to thrive, but also attends to things like the way race figured into the Family Values Coalition. It was a movement that was largely white. I wanted to attend to uh, some of the maybe less savory aspects of family values politics as well. So I'm trying to be fair. I'm not trying to lay my own views out there yeah. uh, throughout the book. Do you write on your blog or in some of your magazine and journal contributions? Do you write in spaces that allow for your own personal opinion about, for instance, you reference the Promise Keepers movement. If there happen to be things from that movement that are still applicable, is that type of writing that you also like to do? Or do you leave that for other sorts of religious philosophers and pundits? You know, I think I probably am not very partisan in any of my writing. And I've taken that position in part because I think we have enough partisanship sure. out there <laughs> and the world is you know, full of shades of gray. And I also, I come to my work with the belief that most people, most of the time are trying to do the right thing. And we disagree about what the right thing is, but it's important for us to understand how someone else can figure out this is the way we ought to be doing things. And and so I, I take my task as a historian to be understanding and explaining uh, probably a little bit more than criticizing. Now, in conversation with my students, certainly in, in office hours, with friends, then I'll, you know, I'll engage some of these these questions in a little more depth about what issues might I have with the people I study. But I, I actually don't write that way very often. Your PhD dissertation, which was finished in 2007, was seemingly on the same subject or a very similar subject, and you've written articles and blogged pretty extensively on this subject in the past decade. So I'm wondering to what extent, if at all, this book is an amalgam of a bunch of different previous writings of yours, or if it's something totally new. Yeah, the the article that most prefigures this book is is got the same title, basically, Fam- Family Values and the Formation of a Christian Right Agenda that was published in the journal Church History in 2009. And it focuses on the hot-button political issues, abortion, gay rights, and feminism that really occupied evangelical politics in the late 70s and early 1980s. The new features of the book really are, are the, the focus on uh, schools, which I haven't uh, published anywhere else, and the focus on masculinity in the last third of the book. That, those are the pieces of the book that I think really deeply expand on any previous publishing I've done. But you're right to suggest this is a culmination of probably a decade worth of, of research and 
uh, writing on conservative evangelical politics. Uh, I hope it's a, it reflects the uh, amount of time I've spent studying these people and trying to understand my subjects on their own terms. So it's interesting that you use the word culmination. Does that mark a shift in your focus? Are you going to go from 20th century evangelical Christianity to 17th century Catholicism for the next 10 years? or I, I'm heading in a new direction. I am not going back that far. I think uh, my, my next project is going to be about uh, masculinity, which is covered in the book, but not specifically about evangelical masculinity, not specifically about politics. Uh, I'm really interested in how Christians have conceived of what it means to be a man and what it means to have, to use an early 20th century term, a manly faith, uh, which isn't a term we use much anymore. I think this is an understudied topic in part because women have done the lion's share of great work on gender and religion. I want to study masculinity because I think men have too often thought they didn't have a gender. And I think, in fact, obviously men do have gender and gender roles and gender norms and gender expectations, and they've gone unstudied by academics and historians and particularly religious historians. Um, and I want to uh, look at a variety of different traditions, evangelical Protestantism certainly, but also liberal Protestants and Catholics uh, and even American Muslims and the way they have conceived of masculinity in various ways over the course of the 20th century. Interesting. So that definitely leads to my next question, which is what is the sort of historical religious research that you do? What does that look like? I imagine it entails unimaginable amounts of, of reading, but I also noticed that you've presented at conferences almost every year for the last decade plus, dating back to even your, your master's or even possibly undergraduate days. I'm sure there's an element of dialogue and community in this international scholarship yeah. space that you're in. Do you consider yourself a researcher and what does this sort of research entail? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question and it's, it's fun to talk about the process. Uh, I try to make a trip at least once a year, if not a couple times, to archives. And archives, I've worked in archives around the United States. For this book, I worked in archives at a lot of evangelical colleges, places like Bob Jones University and Liberty University and Baylor and Southern Baptist Seminary and Wheaton College. When I'm in these archives, I'm looking at a lot of magazines that were produced by the subjects I'm studying. I'm looking at newspaper articles. In some cases, I'm looking at private correspondence. Collecting all that in kind of an intense, usually a week-long intense session of collecting PDF scans and, and taking notes on those. And then at conferences, that's another big part of what it means to do historical research. I'm interacting with people, some of whom have been in the same archives, some of whom have been in different archives, sharing uh, what we found, talking about it, either in formal presentations or over beers. This is what we're working on. There's a combination of individual research and also collaborative conversation that goes into producing historical work. And it's, it's a really exciting field to work in um, for me because I am kind of a, an archive nerd and I like that, that discovery phase. But I also uh, have a great cohort of other scholars who are studying American religious history around the country that I can talk to about the work. And, and uh, there's a lot of innovative research being done in this field right now. Is that sort of work that you're describing in particular when you travel to these archives or conferences, is that the sort of thing that you're doing in any sort of collaboration with other PLU faculty or bringing students into, or is that pretty isolated? I've had a, a few opportunities to collaborate at PLU. Two years ago, I had a, a student at PLU, Clayton Bracht, who 
worked with me on a faculty student research grant, and Clayton went to the YMCA archives in Minneapolis, where I had been twice previously, mm-hmm. and did some of the same type of archival research, came back, and the two of us collaborated to put together a conference paper based on both his research and my research in the archives. I'm also fortunate in the religion department to have a regular monthly colloquium where we present our research to one another and offer critiques and suggestions and feedback on research that we're working on. So even though we're in different subfields, I'm hearing what my colleagues in the department have to say on my research. You know, usually about once a year I get to present at these colloquia, and it's an important part of my intellectual life here at PLU. I'm curious, what is an average week look like for you in terms of balancing your responsibilities as an educator and a professor with other commitments you may have on campus with this sort of scholarship? Do you find yourself binging on scholarship when you have time away from your responsibilities as an educator? What's that balance like? Yeah, and that's exactly right. We It depends on whether you're asking about a week during the semester or a week during the summer. I was curious about the semester, but then as I was thinking about it, I sort of suspected that you may find yourself in the summer or holiday breaks yeah. going gung-ho. And then I was thinking, this is, how do you ever take a vacation? Um, yeah, that's right. Well, we, we're fortunate to have flexible schedules. So you, you, you end up making sure that you give some time for, for yourself and, and taking vacations and things like that. But during the semester, I would say probably 70% of my time is spent on my classes, on teaching, grading, prepping for class, meeting with students. And then another 20 25% is spent on committee work and department meetings and all the various other parts of a professor's life that make up you know, important functions to help with our faculty governance system at PLU. And then you know, I do try to give 10% or more of my time to writing and scholarship uh, during the semester, although some weeks it gets tough because the time is, is short. But I, I do try to commit to deadlines and do some uh, writing on deadlines. So this semester I have an article due at the end of April. I have a book review due at the end of February. So there is some kind of forward progress on projects, although most of the, the big research and writing is done during the summer. Gotcha. In closing, what are your goals as an educator, writer, and scholar for the next five or even 10 years? Yeah. When I teach at PLU, I'm trying to get my students to think historically. Uh, And what I mean by that is to understand a past world that looks very different from their own. And if they can do that, it it takes what I call critical empathy. Empathy uh, is putting yourself in the shoes of another person, somebody who sees the world very different than you do. And and then the, the critical piece is to understand things from a historical perspective that somebody in the past probably wasn't aware of, things that you know are just in the water in the 17th century or in the 19th century. So for instance, in the 19th century South, white Southerners were convinced that slavery was God's will. And that's a really morally repugnant view. But the work of historical thinking is to try to understand that world on its own terms and not to suspend your moral judgment, but to, to work in a way that, that, that makes sense of, of past worlds that have things that, that are almost incomprehensible today. And that's, that's really hard work. And it's, I think, really important work because empathy is a virtue that we lack in contemporary society. And it's something that I really try to inculcate in my students. 
Thanks so much for joining us for this podcast, Seth. Again, uh, Seth Dallin is an assistant professor of religion at PLU. Seth has a new book published recently called Family Values and the Rise of the Christian Right.